Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, we've talked on this show a lot about what happens to the Pac-12 after George Klyovkov is gone. After the 10 departing schools leave to go off to the Big Ten and the ACC and the Big 12. John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News had the news today. Breaking story. Pac-12 officially moving on. Process could take a while. But Klyovkov's tenure coming to a close. Now, we asked Scott Barnes, the Oregon State Athletic Director, in August about the roles of George Klyovkov and Oliver Luck, the consultant that the Pac-2 had hired. Here's what Barnes had to say. Right now, John, we, we are, uh, you know, Washington State and Oregon State are joined at the hip. We're, we're in uh, continual conversation with Stanford and Cal as recently as uh, this afternoon. Um, we'll continue that dialogue, um, helping them get to, to where they're at. But uh, George has not been involved in our path forward at all um, to this point. Um, and I, I'll just tell you that's a presidential decision in terms of what his role may be um, moving forward. And so uh, certainly that will be further further discussed and, and um, uh, obviously with George. And, and we'll, we'll see what that looks like moving forward. But uh, not that has yet to be determined. Six months later, George Klyovkov separating with the Pac-12 conference. Not a huge surprise. I frankly think he needs to be out of the way. I think Oregon State, Washington State have a lot they need to get to. And uh, I have been uh, a little perplexed on why they've kept him around. I'm sure they have their reasons. Uh, John Wilner broke the news today. He joins us now. Uh, Wilner, um, surprised at the timing? Not surprised? Is this the right time? Well, I mean, you could have made the case the right time was August 5th, right? I mean, the day <laughs> after the collapse, uh, or basically any day since then. Um, you know, I, I think that they there was some kind of value, especially from Washington State's standpoint with the college football playoff, because WSU President Kirk Schultz is on the CFP board, the Pac-2's position in the future of the CFP is an important piece of this whole thing. Klyovkov was, you know, as a commissioner, he's on the management committee. I think there may have been, you know, for that reason, uh, keep they decided to keep him on for a while. But, you know, uh, he's not going to be missed. That's for sure. Uh, we'll see what happens with the playoff. They're, they've got a lot to, to kind of still figure out here. But, uh, you know, they've, he, he's not doing anything in terms of the day-to-day running of the conference. The 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 Oregon State Washington State contingent has control of the board. Um, per your report, um, you know the board has given the departing ten schools some notice of this. How does that process work in your mind? I mean, according to Judge Gary Leiby's order, Oregon State Washington State, um, I suppose, can make decisions, but probably need to inform the other 10 of what they're doing, what the plan is. I'm sure they're going to look over and shrug and go, yeah, do what you need to do. But how does that process work? Well, I'm sure that they already know. Like, I can't imagine that this is uh, at all a surprise to the 10. 
uh, there, I'm sure that it, this is a, uh, I think it's three days, you know, so the Washington State, Oregon State have to post a notice. And I believe the other 10 schools have three days to respond uh, before action gets taken. But I cannot imagine that the 10 uh, didn't know this was coming uh, from prior conversations with, with the Cougars and Beavers. So uh, my guess is they've already got this thing worked out. And it's just going to be a matter of, you know, dealing with Kliakoff on, on the exact nature of the settlement, right? They are, it doesn't appear that they're going to try to fire him with cause. Even though they could have tried to fire him for incompetence or insubordination, I think they're taking the high road and just want to be rid of him and bring some kind of settlement. I don't know exactly what it'll be, $4 million, $5 million maybe. And then each side just kind of walks away, and that's that's that, and the Cougars and Beavers can move on. Let's look at his legacy. I mean, he follows Larry Scott, perhaps an overcorrection from the Larry Scott personality and and leadership style. Uh, you know, he comes in and inherits a media rights negotiation, and very quickly finds on his one year anniversary or so that U- USC and UCLA are leaving the conference. Could should George have done more? to prevent the L.A. schools from leaving? I mean, sure. There's no doubt he should have done more. What Would it have mattered is a different matter, right? That I am not convinced that there's anything that the Pac-12 presidents would have approved on June 29th, 2022, that could have prevented USC and UCLA from leaving the next day. Because I didn't the presidents were Before they thought the schools were going to leave, they didn't have any motivation to do the things that were necessary to keep them from leaving, right, which was going to be some kind of unequal revenue sharing uh, as a start, and they were not prepared to do that. I mean, Oregon, I don't think there's any chance Oregon or Washington would have agreed to unequal revenue share with the L.A. schools. Uh, Then they leave. Could he have done more? Sure. I just don't. I think to a certain degree with everything about his tenure, you have to put it in context with the presidents who were ultimately in charge of the conference. And they were, it was not a good group of presidents in terms of running the college, the college conference. I think that, you know, when I think about his biggest misfires, I hear people say, well, he should, he had job one was keeping the LA schools. Okay. You could say that, but I agree with you. I think his failure to manage the presidents and chancellors is maybe the biggest misfire of his tenure. Right, and Larry Scott was very good at that. And, uh, you know, either because of what had happened under Scott or because of Kliakov's personality and management style or because of both of those things, he couldn't really kind of corral them. He did have a tough job, right, because immediately after the L.A. schools leave, right, and everybody else is searching for a life raft, he's got to convince them to stay together and the way he does that is, look, stick together. We, we're going to sign a good media deal. There's value in these 10 schools. You're best off sticking together. Then he's got to turn around a month later and say, well, ESPN's given us a terrible offer, right? That's a tough – it's kind of a tough needle to thread, but I also think uh, a stronger commissioner would have been able to do it. Uh, you know, I, my – feeling is realignment is a rock fight and he showed up with a teddy bear and that was just not he was just not cut out totally ill-equipped 
for for the task at hand. John Wilner with us, San Jose Mercury News. Oregon State, Washington State have a lot, of course, uh, you know, in the long view, in the short term. Uh, in your mind, biggest uh, biggest decisions or biggest issues facing the Babers and Cougars? Biggest issues? Well, I, you know, you could go with the the knowns, or you could go with the known unknowns. Uh, right, the knowns are the biggest issue is going to be competing on the field and signing a media rights deal here in the next month or two that gives them some decent visibility, right? Uh, the the unknown the known unknowns are exactly what what will happen with the ACC. How is the NCAA going to evolve? What's going to happen with the college football playoff and the access and the money? And how will the Beavers and Cougars be part of it? So there's so many issues. Some of them are outside of their control. Some of them are not. But it's like just this you know a series of tidal waves coming at them and you know they've they've got to do the best they can to try to make decisions in the present day that will set them up for what might happen in two years or five years the management committee of the college football playoff 11 votes uh you know kirk schultz the president of washington state has got a vote they have to have a unanimous vote to make changes uh, in the next two years to the playoff format, the, the other the other voters would very much like Oregon State, Washington State to uh, to get on board with the idea that they should not get an automatic qualification that that, you know, maybe they shouldn't be entitled to a full share of the normal distribution. I don't know what goes into that. But Schultz uh, pushing back reportedly wants some kind of guarantee that Oregon State, Washington State can keep. Uh, a vote, a seat at the table, maybe distributions beyond 2025. What is his aim here, and, and what do you expect to happen with that CFP management committee? I mean, it's all one giant negotiation, not only for the next two years, but also for starting in, with the 2026 season. The thing is, he's looking for the two schools to get a seat at the table starting in 26, but there is no playoff starting in 2026 ESPN's contract uh, runs out uh, after two seasons from now, right now they are negotiating a new deal with ESPN. In fact, it was reported today that it's going to be like 1.3 billion per year for six years, but all of the important issues like revenue distribution, format, governance, you know, those things have not been settled at all. So, He's kind of holding out for a seat at a table that hasn't really been built yet. Um, now, he should negotiate for everything he can because once, you know, once they settle on everything, Washington State, Oregon State are going to be in a very bad position. So if he's got any leverage now, he should be using it. I think that's the smart move. But I don't know that ultimately it's going to position the two schools, uh, you know, in a, in a great, great spot because everything's going to change. Yeah, and especially with, uh, you know, uh, Big Ten SEC sharing notes huddled up. I think it has a lot of people wondering what they're up to. What do you think they are up to? Why Why do the Big Ten and the SEC uh, need to put their heads together? Well, I think that they've, they're they obviously fed up with the NCAA's lack of leadership. They're concerned that a whole bunch of lawsuits are going to basically blow up the NCAA model at, without them having control of it. So what they're trying to do is 
they're trying to blow up the NCAA model while being in control. So I think that they're going to basically try to settle this giant lawsuit against the NCAA, the House case, by creating a structure for college sports that basically satisfies the plaintiffs in that. So they say, we're going to do A, B, and C, and then the plaintiffs say, all right, that's fine. We'll either drop the case or we'll, we'll settle, right? They want to be ahead, get ahead of it. So it's not the court saying you got to do A, B, and C, and you owe $5 billion to the, to the plaintiffs. So I think it's basically about collective bargaining. It's about uh, revenue sharing with the players. It's about all those economic issues is really what they're getting at. Now, the playoff, the future of the playoff is part of it, but this mostly about the future of the NCAA economically. Do you foresee that major college athletics, major college football, will have another round of complete restructuring, realignment, and that, you know, will be left with a division of schools in this upper tier do you foresee that kind of model that has been talked about? Oh, to me, it's a inevitability. I just don't know if it's going to happen in the next two years or the end of this decade, right before the Big Ten's next media deal, or in the mid-2030s. But there's no question to me that the current structure of college football will change dramatically. There's going to be a lot of schools in the same position Washington State and Oregon State are in now. It may now, take a few years. Oh, go ahead. Now, I was just going to say, Oregon and Washington kind of you know, foreshadowed that. you know. And I know I talked to people at Oregon who said, hey, uh, this decision that we're making to leave to go to the Big Ten, it's, it's a 20-year view. Like they were looking 20 years down the road. Hey, where do we want to be when this, this restructuring happens? Um, what do Oregon State, Washington State, in your mind, need to do if they want to be included in that or – has that ship sailed by them being left out already to this point? I mean, I don't see how those two schools could get into – if the sport restructures into basically an upper division of 30, 25, 30 schools, which is what I think is going to happen, uh, the Oregon State and Washington State aren't in that upper division. But neither are Stanford or Cal, UCLA, Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, Utah. I mean, most of those schools are also left out, right? That is the – that is the heavyweight football brand. Because my view is, you know, Fox has got a billion-dollar TV deal with the Big Ten. Uh, but at some point here, the big Fox is going to say there's no more money, right? Because the bundle's shrinking, the economics of sports media are changing, and so, the you know, it's the big brands, it's the big matchups that matter. So Fox is going to say, well, there's not much more money. But so you keep that, you divide up that billion however you want. Well, what's going to happen is the Big Ten's going to say, well, we're, we're going to stop giving Minnesota the same amount of money as Ohio State. And Illinois is not going to get the same amount as Michigan. And so then you're going to have this massive separation between the big schools and the small schools. And Washington, Oregon State, Washington State, Oregon State are going to have, you know, 60 schools in the same boat they are. Yeah, I keep thinking you're right. Like, you know, I wouldn't put Oregon State, Washington State anywhere near the top 30. But if you say it's the top 48, they're on that bubble. I think they're in that next group from like 48 to 64. They're in that range. So then in your mind, is there a middle division that Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, Washington State play in? Are they playing some of the upper tier schools or 
how much division between uh, those those tiers do you see? I don't know if there's upper tier. They may just create a mini NFL where it's mm. like 32 teams. Break away. 40 teams, and they're just playing each other. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's going to be hard for Ohio State and Michigan to kick Illinois and Minnesota out of the Big Ten. It'd be a lot easier for Ohio State and Michigan to go create their own conference, right? And and come join us, Notre Dame and USC and Alabama and Texas and those folks. So I don't know if there'll be a middle division. I think there might be a top 30 and then everybody, the other 90 or 100. I'm, I'm not sure how it's going to look. Uh, and it's going to, it could take a while. But, I mean, that's clearly where we're going here because most of these schools are not going to be able to afford uh, this, the revenue sharing with the players, and they're, they're going to get left out when the media dollars uh, shrink. You know, it's just uh, – I think they're better off just kind of ripping the Band-Aid, and I think that's partly what the SEC and Big Ten are trying to do is let's get to the next step quickly instead of having this death by a thousand cuts over the next decade. John Wilner with us, San Jose Mercury News. Wilner, you know, Teresa Gold, deputy commissioner, uh, wildly popular with the staff in the Pac-12 offices. Is she the interim commissioner in your mind, or, or do they go outside, or do they need a commissioner if they're going to play as a conference of two? Well, I think they probably need a commissioner for the spring sports. I mean, let's say they, they cut clear cuff loose here in the next two weeks. I mean, they still got a basketball tournament. They got spring sports, spring sports championships. I kind of think they need somebody who is in charge, right? So to me, she's the obvious candidate. I mean, she knows more about college sports than either of the previous two commissioners did. She's popular on the campuses. She's been an AD at uh, UC Davis. She worked at Cal. So, and, and she's, you know, she's cheap, right? I mean, they, I don't, they probably give her a little bit more money. And she's named commissioner on an interim basis uh, through the, you know, through the spring sports season. Then what happens? Yeah, you know, I just I don't have a great handle on what size of a conference Washington State and Oregon State are going to need if it's really just football because the other sports are in in the WCC. So, you know, do they need a commissioner for the Pac-2 football? I don't know that they do, but you know, they're better off probably with her than anybody else for for a bunch of reasons john wilner with us all right before i before i let you go here uh in the bay area how much of the discussion after the super bowl is about kyle shanahan getting back what's the scuttlebutt right now at the water cooler where you are oh people are bummed you know just a lot of hair pulling over you know the missed extra point and whether he should have uh, taking the ball first or second in overtime, you know what happened on the third, third and four that left Chris Jones completely on the best player on Kansas City's defense completely unblocked. <laughs> you know it's it's just kind of and then it's like oh man Mahomes did it to us again and we haven't won in thirty years. It's it's a uh, it's a tough uh, tough situation down here for a lot of people. But uh, you know incredible game. The way I look at it is, you know you got if you're gonna beat one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time one of the best coaches, and a great defense. you, you got to play. You can't have a, a muff on special teams and a missed extra point, right? That's eight points on special teams they gave up. That's, that's not going to do it.
Now, yeah, you know, for people who tune in to Konzano and Wilner, the podcast, they hear us talk about this kind of stuff all the time. But you were without power for an extended stretch, and uh, you toughed it out with your family. What do you know now that you didn't know before you lost power? Uh, well, I knew food costs a lot of money these days, but I didn't really know how much it cost until I had to throw out a refrigerator full of it uh. and a freezer full of food. That was a killer. Because, you know, we couldn't keep our food after being without power for three and a half days. So everything had gone bad. And then I'm just saying, oh, yeah, well, we had these frozen chicken breasts in the freezer. And, oh, there's this and there's that. And, oh, man, that's a lot of money right there, right there, right there. Like our trash can had $500 in it. Yeah. Oh, man, painful. Oh, man, that was a killer. But, well, you know, we were fortunate we didn't have any flooding. We didn't have any damage. Without power for three and a half days, you know, there's a lot of people in the Bay Area that had it worse. It was a it was a brutal storm, and there's a lot of people in L.A. that had it even worse. They got they got hit harder than we did, even. I love the perspective, John Wilner. Thank you. Good job on the Klyovkov story. Thanks, my friend. There he goes. You know what? I you know it's interesting. You find out about people in the wake of that whole experience with the power being out. I talked to him throughout that whole process. It wasn't fun. For people who were in the uh, Portland metropolitan area, you remember the the freeze of a couple of years ago. You may even have lost power in this last storm. But uh, Wilner at the end saying, well, other people had it worse. Uh, I like that. Uh, good stuff from Wilner. Uh, Pac-12 needs to move on from George Klyovkov. They're going to owe him. If he had um, you know, sort of worked through his contract, they'd owe him about $8 million. I don't know what kind of settlement that will be. It's not going to be an easy check to write if you are the Pac-12. But for people who are wondering, yes, it will be split. The liabilities of the conference are split 12 ways. So the 10 departing schools are going to have to pick up Klyovkov's salary along with Oregon State and Washington State. I tend to think of his tenure through the prism of Larry Scott's tenure. And I think there was a big mistake made in how the conference corrected from Larry Scott, right? They went from a guy who wasn't very collegial, who wasn't very inclusive, who wasn't one to be touchy and feely and soft and talk with people and make people feel involved in decisions, to one who was very collegial, who went around and did a listening tour on his first week on the job and talked to all the schools. And and you got to wonder, amid a negotiation, where you need a big, powerful decisive, convincing voice in the room who's going to help galvanize your presidents and chancellors if George Klyovkov, you know, was the right person to be in that room. He wasn't a killer, and he didn't hire killers. You know, sometimes if you're not a killer as a leader and you don't have that cutthroat personality, you go hire somebody to do that work, right? You got a henchman who comes in to help you negotiate. Well, he hired Doug Perlman at, at Sports Media Advisors, whose style is much the same way as Klyovkov. They're both very collegial. They're nice guys. Like, I'm, you know, I enjoy talking to George Klyovkov, enjoy talking with Doug Perlman, but I don't know in a negotiation situation where you need a killer in the room if that's the right person to be in the room. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Got a big Valentine's Day coming up tomorrow. And I say big because, fellas, ladies and gentlemen, uh, just to have be equal opportunity here, if you uh, have not taken care of business, Valentine's Day is tomorrow. Do not make the mistake that uh, Mario Cristobal made one Valentine's Day, 
shortly after arriving in uh, the state of Oregon to be the Oregon Ducks football coach. He called me. I happened to be out on a date because it was Valentine's Day. And uh, I was uh, parking the car. I had dropped Anna off at the uh, restaurant that we were going to eat at. And then I was parking the car and my phone rang and it was Mario Cristobal. And I I took the call. And the uh, Oregon football coach uh, was on his way home. And he said, uh, don't do what I did. He said, uh, I forgot. And I was so busy with work. And uh, he he was like, "Uh, what are you doing? And I was like, we're going out to eat. And uh, he was like, I'm headed home, and I'm empty-handed. I don't know what Mario Cristobal did. I don't know if he salvaged that that uh, Valentine's Day. But uh, I know that you have time to salvage uh, your Valentine's Day. And, uh, you know, at the very bare minimum, you have to acknowledge its existence. Yeah, A card. I'm not somebody who advocates for, like, flowers or balloons and that stuff. You know, I always think, oh, that's for other people. But if you're uh, in a pinch, uh, do something personal. As I have told uh, a number of interns over the years who have come to me uh, with a panicked look on their face. One time we had an intern. I am not making this up. He told me that he got his girlfriend some silk sheets for Valentine's Day. And I said, that's cool. But you're going to be the guy who gave her sheets on Valentine's Day. Maybe uh, just stop by uh, a store and buy a blank uh, notebook and uh, maybe write a few things into the notebook that um, memories that you have in dating this person so that when she is folding her sheets years from now and going, where is that Brian who gave me those sheets? Uh, She can also say, well, he also gave me that book with all those uh, memories that he had of dating me. That's not a good idea. And then don't do what I did with Anna one year. We were like, you know what? This holiday is for everyone else. It's not for us. It's not our thing. And then we agreed, we're not going to celebrate. We're not going out to dinner. We're not going to do this. You know, there's going to be no flowers or chocolates or any of this other stuff that other people do. And then she came home from work. She was working at the TV station, and she had kind of a somber mood. Do you know the mood? where you can tell something's not quite right, and but she's not saying it. It didn't take me very long to ascertain that the issue was she had regrets about agreeing in a handshake deal to not celebrate Valentine's Day. She wanted a card. She wanted flowers. She wanted chocolate. She wanted some sort of uh, uh, acknowledgement of Valentine's Day. And in the end... Uh, uh, I was uh, sitting there at about 6 o'clock p.m. going, what do I have time to do right now? And uh, trying to scramble around. So don't be me, is what I'm saying. Because uh, subsequently I went, nope, nope, nope. You need to uh, check the box. And in fact, I was in the grocery store today, earlier today, um, and uh, I was grabbing a couple things. And I noticed as I was walking into the store that there were a line of... You know, 30-something, 40-something, 50-something, 60-something-year-old guys who were making their way out of the store with uh, a variety of things like a card or a bouquet of flowers. And uh, I'm just saying this as a public service announcement. Thank me later. I think you're in a, uh, you're in a, uh, a risk management situation right now if you are empty-handed. <laughs> and so start thinking about the risk management and Stephen, I know you say you don't celebrate it, but I think, uh, you know, 
um, uh, uh, a, a handwritten note from Stephen to uh, to Coach Vaughn. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I know that she, like you, likes to partake in a little bit of uh, DraftKings action. A three-team parlay as a Valentine's gift is not a bad way to say, hey, I know you. And uh, that's what gift-giving is about. I, uh, that's a great idea. Yeah, just make a bet for her. And then if it wins, we can go out and get some more yeah. dinner or something. Yeah, I like that. I, Here's what I've done. Hopefully she's in not looking. L- yeah. In lieu of, you know, a steak and lobster dinner, I have placed a three-team parlay on the NBA action on Valentine's Day night. And we're going to settle in with, uh, you know, uh, uh, a nice uh, evening on the couch watching a triple header of NBA basketball. We can watch our bet while we have dinner. I love it. That sounds See? like a date for myself, too. And that's what gift-giving is. Yeah, date for you. Happy Valentine's Day to you. <laughs> um, but that's what gift-giving is. Like, people always say, like, there are some people who really struggle. And I've had, I, and I don't know why, maybe I opened myself up for this, but over the years, I have become that go-to when people are in a pinch. Like, Mario Cristobal knew to call me. And I told him, I said, do something super cheesy. Stop at 7-Eleven, you know? Pick her up something, and, you know, and do it. You know, go go way cheesy, right? You, if you got no other choice, uh, do something. Make it look like you at least, you know, you didn't forget Mario Cristobal because he's so focused on football. Um, but I, uh, I had uh, one guy who asked me. It was his girlfriend's birthday. This was Ben, an engineer that we had, and I he asked me, "Is his girlfriend's birthday? What should he get her?" And I said, "I don't know her. I'm not dating her." I said, "You have to. The gift giving is all about." Showing the other person, the recipient, I know you, I understand you, I get you, and and that's what it's about. Like it's not about like spending more money. It's not about doing something grand. Like a lot of people get caught up in that as you know, gift giving goes. It really is about letting the other person know I understand who you are. That's the best. Those are the best gifts. And so I often have advocated for people like, you know, sit down, go buy one of those blank notebooks that they sell at Barnes and Noble or a bookstore and sit down and print out a bunch of photos, you know, you got on your phone at Walgreens and go through and just write, hey, you know, I remember going to see Victor Wimbanyama's first game at Moda Center with you. I'll never forget you getting a churro and stick the picture in there. Then you go to the next page. And, you know, I'll never forget that time we uh, went on a walk and we lost our car keys and had to call an Uber to give us back home. You know, I'm just saying, don't like make me do all the work here. I'm just saying, show your significant other that you have been paying attention, that you are alert, and that you are lucid. And that's what gift giving is about in uh, 2024, by my estimation. Uh, I also... Uh, uh, I also think it's not a bad idea if you can mix some food in with it because, you know, that gets you a night out. But you don't have to be that person. I can remember a really bad Valentine's Day date that was so bad it was good that Anna and I went on. It was uh, We went to a place called Amadeus Manor that's over, I think, in Clackamas or Milwaukee, somewhere, you know, in that area. And, uh, it's, you know, I, I think it's now defunct. I don't think it's open anymore. But the restaurant had had an issue with open table. And so apparently they didn't know how to work open table, the the uh, reservation system that uh, is online. And anybody who tried to make a reservation got a table. So everybody crushed the restaurant at like 7 p.m. with like 100 people, and they only had room for like 25. 
and they had a real problem. And so what they started doing is setting up kind of impromptu tables all over the restaurant because they didn't want to turn anybody away. They felt bad. But nobody really got any food. Nobody really got any service. And I had gone to the to the great lengths of having a, a, a BFT radio show listener, uh, you know, it was named Mark Meek, who uh, ended up, um, you know, he wanted to, he was doing these uh, charity uh, offering that he would come and sing. He was kind of like a Tony Bennett slash Frank Sinatra impersonator. He would come sing on your date for a donation, and the money was all going to charity. And so I had hired him to come to Amadeus Manor to serenade and sing a uh, Sinatra song. And, uh, of course, he walked into that setting where there were 100 people in a, in a restaurant built for 25, and uh, we were all kind of laughing and shaking our heads as uh, Mr. Meek serenaded uh, everybody in the room who was not being fed. And I'll never forget it. We finally got up and said, okay, we're going to leave. Nobody got any food. And the uh, server ran after us in the parking lot with a slice of chocolate cake on a plate saying, here, just take this. And I felt so bad for the guy because uh, it wasn't his fault that Open Table had overbooked the airplane. So we interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face hey, Sorry Truth. to interrupt the podcast, but if you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.